Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Nikkel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. State lawmakers are meeting in Tallahassee this week to discuss how Florida will implement the Federal Affordable Care Act. Last week, Governor Rick Scott went to Washington to discuss the details with federal officials. WMFE's Tom Parkinson asked economic analyst Hank Fishkind to explain what the state is planning to do, how much it will cost, and how it will affect the wallets of average Floridians. Tom, there's two issues. One is whether the state sets up its own health care exchange, and the second is whether the state expands Medicaid enrollment. And those are two different things. Uh, the, if the state fails to establish its own health care exchange, the federal government will do that. It wouldn't cost the state anything. The state could have more control, but it doesn't cost the state anything. The real issue is whether or not the state of Florida expands Medicaid. The federal government will offer the states upwards of 90% of the ongoing costs, and in the initial years, 100% of the cost, to expand Medicaid. Some states have chosen to take the federal government up on that offer. Others have chosen not to do that. Either way the state goes on these two matters, it's going to cost Florida residents some money. There's no doubt about that. There would be an added expense, but there'd be significant added benefits. Uh, Such as? Well, uh, for each dollar that the state spends on a steady-state basis, the federal government's going to contribute $9. So this would cause a huge increase in health care expenditures. It would create far better health care in the state of Florida. It would reduce the load of indigent health care under the, the current system, which would be a significant cost savings. And it would create a substantial amount of new jobs, $46 billion of additional spending on health care, or a run rate of almost $10 billion per year on additional health care spending, it's going to create about 25,000 direct health care jobs and probably as many as 50 or 60,000 total job increase. So it is a substantial jobs program in addition to being a significant health care program. Now, I think what a lot of people are wondering as this program is phased in over the next couple of years is, is what is it going to be like and how much is it going to cost for me? Now, suppose I'm someone who is either unemployed or I work, as many people do, in Central Florida for the tourism and hospitality industry and my employer is not offering health coverage. What will it look like for me? What will the process look like and how much is it going to cost? Well, it kind of depends upon what the state of Florida does. So assume that the state of Florida does not expand Medicaid and does not open its own health care exchange, then those who are working can get their health care insurance uh, from the new health care exchanges run by the federal government. And that policy would be subsidized depending upon their income. Those who aren't working probably cannot afford even the policies under the health care exchanges. They wouldn't be covered under Medicaid, so their condition really wouldn't change much. By contrast, if the state of Florida expands Medicaid enrollment, then many people who would not be able to get their health insurance from the exchanges would be covered by the expansion in Medicaid and would have much better health care insurance. The process would be exactly the same as the state has now, or pretty close there, too. Now, Hank, in in some other states, I'm thinking of Massachusetts and and Tennessee and several others that have already expanded the public health care system, their experience has been that as the state begins to offer alternatives to the traditional model of employer-based health insurance, many employers uh, begin to find loopholes and exemptions and uh, various ways to avoid offering health insurance 
health insurance coverage to their employees, knowing that the state is going to pick up the slack. Do you foresee that happening here? There's no doubt there'll be some distortions. Uh, if employers have less than 50 employees, that's where we could get the distortions of companies uh, no longer providing the same kind of health care and attempting to make some types of transitions. For very small companies, they actually get a subsidy to provide health care if they're not providing it now under the Affordable Care Act. For companies over 50 employees, they must provide uh, the full health care uh, to their employees. So, yeah, I mean, you, you're going to see some gaming of the system on the margins. Some employers, though, you know, of course, are still saying that implementation of so-called Obamacare is going to cost them millions of dollars to implement. They say they can't afford it and say that they're going to have to lay off people because of the expense of this. Is there a validity to their concerns and what will really happen? Well, uh, for some firms, especially in the restaurant business, there is some validity to those concerns. But those companies that fail to provide health care will find that their best employees go to the companies that do provide health care. With the flu season in full swing, everyone is being urged to get a flu shot. There may be another six weeks of the flu season, and 47 states are already reporting widespread cases. Paul Myers from the Alachua County Health Department says they're trying to do their part to help prevent more flu infections. We're having clinics today from 8.30 in the morning till 6.30 tonight, and they're staffed by our Medical Reserve Corps. And the purpose of them is to really try and push vaccination out into the community because getting vaccinated against flu is the most preventative measure that we can take to not getting infected. Meyer says flu shots are free for health department clients, and for everyone else, it's $25. But he also says most health insurance policies do cover flu vaccinations. He also says they're especially trying to get children vaccinated because that can have a significant impact on the entire community. I think we're seeing that performance in Alachua County. Alachua County right now is reporting very mild flu conditions. That means that we have scattered cases. There is no increase in uh, school absenteeism above baseline rates. There certainly is no disruption in school activities. And so if we can get the vaccine into those children who are between the ages of, say, 5 and 13, the models have shown that you can protect the whole community. And that's exactly what the Fluminous program is designed to do. And you're seeing it this year with mild conditions in Alachua County. But be careful not to confuse flu symptoms with those of allergies. Recent warmer temperatures have driven up the local pollen count, causing allergies and allergy-like symptoms in many people. University of Florida otolaryngology professor Dr. John Harwick says this rise in pollen count is earlier than usual. This is the beginning uh, right now of the pollen season, which is starting earlier than usual. A uh, similar event happened last year. Typically, the pollen, we think about the tree pollen season starting in February. But because of the warmer weather and the dry uh, conditions and windy conditions, uh, the pollen counts have been unseasonably high. And so a lot of uh, people are experiencing their pollen allergy symptoms much earlier this year than typical. Myers says one of the main deciding factors between allergy symptoms and those associated with the flu is whether or not you have a fever. Yeah, a flu, you're going to have an acute onset of a very high fever above, above 100 degrees. That's going to be accompanied by a severe sore throat, a runny nose, cough, headache, really muscle aches. Allergies are, are, can be serious for those who suffer from them. Um, and it's really, uh, really no fever associated with that. Just the, the stopped up nose and, and the cough and the tickle in the back of your throat really makes you feel miserable. But really, fevers are not associated with allergies. Dr. Horowitz says a change in weather could definitely have an impact on the area's pollen count. I think it's going to rain later this week is what I've 
uh, seen in the forecast, and the rain will certainly knock down the pollen that's in the air. That will help some patients. That will help people's symptoms uh, in the, in the short term. Uh, it may get colder again. It's been so unseasonably warm this week, uh, and last it may get cold again, which will which will prevent some further blooming and uh, delay reblooming. So I think at this point, you really can't predict is this going to be a season worse than any other season. I think the only thing you could say is the season has started earlier than typical. Dr. Harwick adds, it's of course difficult to avoid being around pollen, but says certain times of the day can help avoiding certain amounts of pollen. Well, I think one thing is to avoid, if possible, going out on days when the pollen counts are high. That's not always possible, of course. Avoid uh, going out in the early morning hours when the pollen count tends to be high. But certainly most of us have to be out doing our daily activities and are going to be exposed. And so if we've got allergies to pollen, the most important thing is getting, when you get home, you know, shed those clothes that have been out there collecting pollen, take a shower, wash your hair, get all the pollen off of your body. Um, and then using uh, saline rinsing for the nose is very effective in terms of cleansing the pollen from the nasal cavities and getting rid of the irritant that causes the symptom. Dr. Harwicks adds, if these remedies do not prevail, he advises going to see a physician. The Florida Stand Your Ground law has divided lawmakers and citizens alike. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman reports on a new bill proposed to repeal the much-talked-about law. The controversial Stand Your Ground law is being talked about by Florida lawmakers once again. Florida Representative Alan Williams proposed a bill last week that, if passed, would repeal the law that received a lot of attention after the killing of Trayvon Martin almost a year ago. Representative Williams believes the law, which gives the right to use forceful self-defense against an unlawful threat, has failed. In order to be passed, the bill will have to go through the House Judiciary Committee, chaired by Representative Dennis Baxley, an original co-sponsor of the law in 2005. Representative Baxley says the law was created to protect would-be victims of violence. He says the law does not allow protection for those who pursue another person. And there's nothing in our uh, self-defense statute that authorizes you to pursue, confront, provoke others. Uh, it is strictly a law-abiding citizen under violent attack, which applies uh, the statute. Baxley is still in support of the Stand Your Ground law and believes it gives greater protection to Floridians. Baxley says any problems with the law appear only when it is not applied correctly. Well, what we've seen is uh, if there are some problems, it's probably more in the area of how it's applied, and I think more of the concerns have been in uh, whether or not the policy was applied equitably uh, from situation to situation. And we had quite a bit of testimony and discussion about those examples. Baxley says these problems can be fixed if law enforcement and courts are trained to better understand how the law should be used. So I think as law enforcement uh, develops their training about what this uh, statute means, and as the court continues to develop procedures on how they utilize and examine application, uh, we'll get a, a better refinement. Baxley says any bill that reduces the protection of Floridians is concerning to him. He plans to read through the final bill very carefully in order to make sure the rights of citizens in Florida are not compromised. Well, I would be very concerned that uh, if we did anything that uh, really diminished the safety and self-protection rights of our citizens. 
So, um, you know, we'll look carefully at everything that's proposed and be happy to have the discussion. But again, uh, I will be cautious. Though Baxley is still behind the law he co-sponsored over seven years ago, he says he will wait to read through the final drafts of the bill proposed to make any decisions. I'm also waiting to see what the final uh, report looks like from the task force, which I served on and I have seen the uh, proposed drafts, but uh, I'm waiting for the lieutenant governor to speak to and deliver the final uh, report from the task force. There is no official release date for the final report of the bill yet. Representative Baxley believes the bill will be released before the House goes into session on March 5th. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. Welcome back. Gainesville residents can now communicate with the Gainesville Police Department with the touch of a button on their phone. Tipsoft software allows users to send anonymous crime tips and receive activity alerts via text message, email, and a smartphone application. GPD spokesman officer Ben Tobias talks about how the program came about. We were called upon by a lot of our different citizens to, uh, to have another way to communicate with the Gainesville Police Department. So this was launched over the winter break. We did kind of a, a soft opening, we can call it, and now that class is back in and now that all the students are back, uh, we're really looking forward to using this a lot more. The idea for the system was modeled after the University of Florida's UF text alerts, but Tobias says the unique feature of Tipsoft is that people can reply. The program works in one of two ways. Um, the first way is we can actually send out alerts similar to the UF text alerts. Uh, it would be a lie if I told you we weren't somewhat jealous of that system because uh, the University of Florida has the power to you know, get the message to thousands of people instantly. So we started looking, how can we do that as the Gainesville Police Department because we've got information that we need to get out quickly as well. So we found this program uh, called Tipsoft. It allows us to put these reports out, put these text alerts, email alerts out. But the good thing about it is you can actually reply to our alerts. Uh, you can interact with the Gainesville Police Department. Uh, so if you see an alert and you have some information from the alert, you don't have to pick up the phone, you don't have to do anything but just reply to a text. Tobias explains the different uses of this new tech system and how it can benefit users. There's a balance between too much information and not enough information. I'm trying to find that good balance. So right now I've got three separate categories. Crime alerts, which would be for like wanted person flyers, uh, missing person flyers, things of that nature. Traffic alerts, where I'll do, uh, you know, if there's a disabled vehicle or a crash that's severely blocking one of the major thoroughfares. And then emergency alerts, say we unfortunately had a, a major catastrophe or a major incident and I needed to get to the, wor the word out to a lot of people, I would use the emergency alerts. So right now I've got those three categories and it may expand, it may you know, consolidate somewhat, but that's what we're doing for now. Gainesville residents and UF students can now sign up for tip soft alerts on GPD's website at www.gainesvillepd.org. The holidays are over, and after getting that shiny new flat-screen TV, what happens to the 90s-era television you no longer need? Our net house electronics in Ocala has a solution. Recycle it. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, about 18% of televisions were recycled in 2007. Our net house is teaming up with IT and cloud solutions partner Sun Digital to host an electronics recycling charity event on Wednesday in downtown Ocala. Michelle Coates is the director of online marketing at Sun Digital and says it's what our net house represents that attracted Sun Digital to this partnership in the first place. We have put on seven of these different um, recycling events over the past year and a half and we choose a different uh, local charity each time and in particular our net house 
um, the way they really focus on the family and helping the children in our community was what really drawed us to, you know, partner with them for this one. These two organizations hope to have a lot of participants in tomorrow's event, but Sun Digital says the efforts are year-round. The EPA also reports that almost 30 million desktops and 12 million laptops were discarded in 2007. That's more than 112,000 computers thrown out per day. Code says they're hoping to match last year's successes. Last year we collected about five tons of electronics and dead dead computers and retired electronics um, throughout the whole year. So this year we're assuming it's going to be close to the same, um, but that's an annual goal versus a, an event goal. And to help them achieve these goals, everyone is encouraged to bring in electronics. Code says if it has a cord, they'll take it. It's pretty much anything with a cord. <laughs> is what our recycler always says. Anything with a cord. Um, but old computers, old laptops, servers, um, battery backup, fax machines, um, anything of that sort. The only thing that, um, that we don't or we do charge to recycle are the tube televisions, and that's just because of the lead content in them. They have to be recycled in a very specific way. Coates also encourages everyone to keep in mind taking part in this recycling event can do more than rid your home of old electronics. Just that the funds all go to charity. Um, what they do is we work with a local recycler here in town who is ISO certified and they properly dispose of all the electronics um, and then give us the money that they would give, you know, for recycling the different metals and components within those items and then we turn around and give that money back to charity. So um, it's just a, a nice way to actually do two different things, um, save the environment from depositing these items in landfills, which is not good for, for the landfills and for the people around them. Um, and then also that money also helps a local charity. So it's kind of a, a two-pronged benefit. The event takes place tomorrow in downtown Ocala, diagonally from the Ocala Square from 7.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Election supervisors from several Florida counties are turning in their wish list for how the state's election law needs to change. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palombo reports, the Senate Committee on Ethics and Elections heard from the county officials Monday about what they think caused problems during the 2012 election. The committee heard testimony from nine election supervisors, including those from several of the biggest counties. All too often when situations like these arise, those of us on the ground or in the trenches are overlooked as sources for workable solutions. So again, thank you for the opportunity of allowing us to give you some ideas on solutions. That's Lee County Election Supervisor Sharon Harrington. The committee also heard from officials from St. Lucie, the only county that didn't return its results on time, and and Miami-Dade, where some precincts didn't close until the early morning hours the day after the election. Escambia County Election Supervisor David Stafford echoed a common theme. Uh, the length of the ballot increased the, the cost and complexity of the election and, and was quite frankly a source of complaints that we received as supervisors from a number of voters from across the state. The 2012 ballot contained 12 amendments, which caused many counties to use multi-page ballots for the first time ever. Harrington from Lee County said it was costly and challenging to print, mail, and store the tons of paper. Lee County ran out of space very quickly in our confined area that is secured to keep those ballots safe until the final certification of an election. I cannot imagine 
what Miami-Dade and Broward and Palm Beach had to go through. Most of the supervisors also asked to be allowed to use more types of early voting sites and to be allowed to offer early voting on more days. Those were concerns even in the counties that the committee held up as examples of efficiency. Even though we had more early voting sites per capita than any other county, we still had two-hour-long lines at early voting. Starting a few days earlier would have been helpful. That's Jerry Holland, the election supervisor in Duval County. He was asked to share why his county did so well, but he said he actually sees a lot of room for improvement. He said Duval returned its results only minutes before the deadline, and that's much too close. He also requested the legislature require electronic poll books instead of the paper records kept at polling locations now. The committee asked all the supervisors whether they support reinstating early voting on the Sunday right before the election. Most said they thought it should be optional, but Palm Beach election supervisor Susan Booker says she thinks that day should be required in all counties because minority voters traditionally vote on that day in such high numbers. I think we're disenfranchising this particular uh, community by not allowing them to vote early on that Sunday. And another common theme among the supervisors is that companies providing printing and ballot counting services should be held more accountable for mistakes and mechanical failures. For example, in St. Lucie County, Supervisor Gertrude Walker blamed the late returns on memory card failure. The Senate Ethics and Elections Committee will continue taking testimony over the next couple of months before submitting its recommendations to the full legislature. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. A press conference to announce a new band director for Florida A&M University didn't go as planned today. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports minutes before the announcement, university officials said they weren't ready to name a new director because of contract disputes. Florida A&M University settled on four finalists for the position, including Associate Band Director Shelby Chipman, who many considered a frontrunner. Instead, the school made an offer to North Carolina Central Band Director Joram Reed, a former FAMU band drum major. But Reed and the university have yet to come to an agreement on contract terms, and university spokeswoman Sharon Saunders called the press conference off. They were unable to reach an agreement. And when they are able to reach their agreement, we will call you back again and we'll have an announcement. We really regret that we were not able to do this. FAMU has been without a band director since Julian White resigned last year in the wake of the hazing death of a drum major. The school's Marching 100 band remains under suspension. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. Veteran advocates in North Central Florida are applauding the nation's largest retailer on its pledge to give back to those who have served in recent wars. Walmart Stores has announced today over the next five years it plans to hire every veteran who honorably left the military in the last year. The nation's largest private employer projects more than 100,000 people to find work through the program, making it one of the largest hiring pledges for veterans on record. Earlier today, I talked with Director of Alachua County Veterans Services, Major Stroop, on his thoughts about Walmart's commitment. I heard the announcement that Walmart were planning to hire, uh, I believe what they said, hire as many veterans as need a job. And to me, that's just an outstanding position for an employer to take, particularly considering the fact that when our troops come home from a conflict in years past. Uh, there's always been, you know, an employment issue and so forth. And now that the soldiers are coming home from the battlefield, you know, they need to get back in, not only into civilian life, but they got families to support. 
and it will do nothing but not only help our veterans, it will help our economy, and uh, it's just a win-win all the way around. And, and I have to just take my hat off to Walmart for stepping up to the plate and being the uh, the uh, corporate sponsor of this program. And uh, I'm I'm truly hopeful that other other big corporations and so forth will uh, will follow suit. And how often do you encounter veterans that are in need of a job and are having difficulty finding these jobs? Well, that's it's an ongoing problem, and and we see we see them weekly in our office, and of course we we always run them over to the uh, Florida Workforce Board and and you know try to find them employment, and and uh, you know generally speaking, uh, the general age population that is coming home are younger soldiers who are in the uh, uh, the uh, money. Uh, what do you call it, the money-making years where they need employment to work and and uh, they need, uh, in some cases, to go back to college and they got families to raise. So they need work, they need families to raise, I mean, uh, money to raise their families. And, uh, and this is just the right kind of program for this uh, particular situation because, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, a bunch of retirees coming home, they, they would have retirement to lean on. But, uh, but this age group, they, they particularly need America's support to put them back into the workforce to, to get them on down the road. And, you know, from what you've seen or heard of, how does it affect veterans when they can't find work and get into these jobs? Oh, it's, it's, it's devastating. I mean, it's very disappointing uh, uh, because, and I, and I will tell you, the, the, the military is, takes care of soldiers' needs in some ways that they sometimes they don't realize that a lot of their needs are met while they're in the service, but when they come home and they, they step back out into civilian life, you know, they've got rent to pay, they've got, uh, you know, they've got to pay to get their kids to school, they've got, you know, groceries to buy and medical bills and, and on and on and on. And uh, it just takes income to do that. And now, you know, now that they're not in the service they don't have that income stream so they need work they need they need to be earning that income and not only for today but for tomorrow their future and their kids future to be able to build up their own nest eggs and send their kids to school and so forth you mentioned walmart was a large corporation stepping up how important do you think it is for large corporations to recognize veterans and focus on getting them jobs since they have you know the opportunity to do so well, I think it's absolutely crucial. Uh, when you have large corporations who will step out of the box and go, we're going to dedicate uh, this program to make sure that we take care of our veterans, uh, that takes a lot of stress off some of those, uh, like you had just mentioned, veterans who are coming back and don't have a job and they don't know where to turn and, and you know, they can't afford to step out and go to college right now because maybe they got kids at home or, or so forth. So it's, it's huge. And the other part of that is hopefully by uh, Walmart doing this, other corporations will take note and go, you know, you're right. We need to do this too. All right. And is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I'm just, I'm very thankful to see this starting to happen. It's long overdue. And with our uh, struggling economy, uh, this will actually help uh, not only our economy, but it'll help 
help uh, employers as well, like Walmart, because they're not getting uh, bottom-level employment people who have just walked out of high school or out of college because when you serve in the military, you've got skills, you've learned how to come to work on time, you know the dedication of the job, and uh, there's a lot of that that you just can't teach that you learn in the military. So they're, they're getting quality applicants by hiring veterans. The program is set to kick off on Memorial Day. After news on two rapes in India has gone viral, questions on potential policy changes in India are underway. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with author and journalist Osra Namoni on the events happening in India and what this means for the country's government and the country's women as well. If you heard about last month's gang rape of an Indian woman, you were not alone. You were also not alone if word of her death angered you or left you questioning how such an occurrence could happen. The surge of a social media outcry urged India policymakers to change something, anything. Despite the international upheaval from the last gang rape incident, another woman was gang raped this past weekend. She, however, survived. The stories of these two women are eerily similar, both happening in India, both raped by multiple men, and both beginning on buses. Asra Namani, a journalist and author of Standing Alone, an American woman's struggle for the soul of Islam, said this chain of rapes is nothing new. She considers herself a daughter of India and said she can relate to these crimes because she too has been a victim in the country where she was born. We have this phenomena there called Eve teasing where it's been considered funny to harass and hassle women on the streets, to touch them, to feel them, to even rape them. I, myself, while I was traveling, was assaulted a couple times. And, uh, you know, I think it's an amazing moment right now because nobody's laughing anymore. Nomani says the recent rapes and the victims' stories have gone viral only to awaken a new movement to address the issue of rape and the role women play in fighting back. This is a turning point for the country and for women all over the world, and Nomani says an awakening is beginning to take place. The country has woken up, and with the country, the world is also awakening to this problem in far-flung destinations around the world. And so it's a really important moment for women everywhere and men also uh, because ultimately if you treat women like this, you know, like commodities and objects and, uh, and targets of predatory behavior, uh, everybody suffers. Because India is based on a code of shame and honor, Nomani believes this changes the way that rape cases are handled. Instead of blaming the victim, a slow change has begun to focus shame away from the victim and towards those who actually commit the crime. And so to protect her honor and her family's honor, women haven't come forward, they haven't pressed charges, they haven't stood up for their rights. So what's phenomenal right now is that the tide has turned. It's now the criminals who are being held responsible for being a shame on society. 
The way these two stories have broken so quickly and on such an international level is in part because of social media. Asra Nomani says social media has created global activism against injustice towards women and is only helping women to push for policy changes. I think social media revolution has uh, increased the rate of uh, response to these acts of violence. It's taken to the world stage to protest. It's um, helped organized people on the far corners of India. And so I think the media has been a really important element of the activism that's, happened, that's happened here. When Nomani would return from journalism assignments in India, she told me that she still remembers the release of fear she would experience when she would leave India and come back to America. Nomani said this fear makes her much more understanding of what these women have gone through and how she needs to be able to speak on their behalf. You know, I remember now when I would come back to America, I would just breathe easier. Like We have a problem here with sexual assault. We have a problem with rape. Uh, we are by no means um, immune from any of these dynamics that, you know, threaten women and others from predatory behavior. But I, it made me really realize how much we impinge on women's rights and mobility and freedoms in society when they have to live under fear. After this weekend's rape, seven men involved, including the bus driver, were arrested and are awaiting charges. Whether you think social media and international outcry or India's government is the one to praise, Asra Nomani was right in saying, regardless, no one is left laughing. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leah Harding. Bringing home a baby is an exciting time for any family. For the dials, the exciting excitement rather was multiplied by five. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Stephanie Donardo reports on how this family is learning how to go about everyday life with five new babies. The first quintuplets born at Shands Hospital for Children are going home after spending two months in the neonatal intensive care unit. Finding out that he was going to be a father of five, Kelly Dial expresses the love and shock of seeing five heartbeats during his wife's first ultrasound. When we zoomed in and see the little heartbeats, and I described it as little fireflies in a, a glass jar. You know, you see all these little white blinks, and that just, just takes your breath away. While Dial and his wife Stacy feel excitement and joy when holding the babies, Dial says he will never forget the anxiety and pressure of his wife's delivery day. Throughout the process when everything was taking place, and she just kept telling the anesthesiologist that she didn't want to know whenever Dr. Greg was starting work. And so we are sitting there and she's like, no, I, I tell me, I want to know. And she's like, no, no, don't tell me, I don't want to know. But I, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure here and there. And I'm patting her on her arm, you know, and holding her hand and anesthesiologist talking to her. And all of a sudden, it was Kendall. Here comes Kendall by. Having one baby is enough work as it is, but when bringing home five, Stacy Dial, the new mom, says that you have to completely redo how you live and work through your everyday life. We had like a little assembly line, five people. Be, uh, we bathed, fed, changed clothes, car seats, car. <laughs> wow. And it took over two hours. 
Dial arrived at the hospital six weeks prior to delivery in order to receive care from the multidisciplinary team at Shands Hospital. While watching the delivery of the quintuplets was the hardest part for Kelly, Stacy says having to stay in bed for weeks was almost unbearable. Bed rest. Bed rest, bed rest, bed rest. Because <laughs> I'm not one for setting still very long, so that was very hard for me. I think it was hard for me and I made it hard for him. Going through the process of having five babies who are then admitted into the neonatal intensive care unit for two months, Dr. David Birchfield, chief of neonatology at Shands Hospital, says that the dials have shown some of the most dedication he has ever seen when trying to care for and do everything you can for the children. Obstetricians uh, managed this patient for, for a, a long time, and then they had the delivery, and then it, then it was into the neonatal intensive care unit for several months and this is a family who is very dedicated is very dedicated to these children and uh, stayed by their bedside so much almost every night you would find the doll family in there with those kids and uh, you can tell that they picked up a little differences and nuances about each of their kids the dedication of the dials was met with the dedication of the Shands neonatal and multiple disciplinary team. Dr. Anthony Gregg, chief of maternal fetal medicine at Shands, says that the teamwork of the staff was crucial to help Dial's pregnancy and birth of her children go smoothly and mostly free from complications. That was Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Stephanie DiNardo. Get the full story on the quintuplets at WUFT.org. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikel Smith.